So if you're, you know, if you consider this your, your church home, your regular attender, would love to see you there. And if there's any way we can help make that happen, talk to me, see what we can do to help with that. With that in mind, if you have your Bibles, and I hope you do take them and turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, as we continue our series, Walking in Gospel Liberty. Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. Once again, we're going to read verses 13 through to 26. So we just have it in its context. Our text this morning is going to be verses 16 to 21 of chapter 5. So, so that we have that whole unit in its context, we're going to start reading in verse 13 and read down to verse 26. Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. And once again, if you're able to do so, would you stand with me out of reverence for God's word as we read our text for this morning? Galatians chapter 5, beginning in verse 13. And as usual, I will read the odd-numbered verses. I'll invite you to read the even-numbered verses with me. Galatians 5, beginning in verse 13. For you were called to be free, brothers and sisters. Only don't use this freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but serve one another through love. For the whole law is fulfilled in one statement. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out, or you will be consumed by one another. I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the, desi- the, the flesh excuse me, desires what is against the Spirit, and the Spirit desires what is against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, promiscuity, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, strife, heresy, outbursts of anger, selfish ambitions, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and anything similar. I am warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The law is not against such things. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Let's pray and ask for God's help as we come to his word this morning. Well, Heavenly Father, we would ask that as we dig into your word once again, that you would open our eyes, that we would see wonderful things out of your word. As we think especially about the nature of the Christian life and the struggle in which we find ourselves, we pray that you would encourage us, that you would give us hope even in the midst of the struggle. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, please be seated. 
Well, we're in part two of this closeout series in our study of Galatians that we've called Walking in Gospel Liberty. And I called it that specifically because we're learning from Paul how it is that free people in Christ actually live to God's glory. If I could just make a couple of reminders from last week, uh, there's one truth that I think you need to keep in mind as we come to this, not just this text, but the rest of the messages that we're going to hear as we close out this letter. That truth is this, that the truths that we saw in the previous chapters, everything we saw in chapters 1 through 4, are critical for understanding this section. If we don't keep those things in mind and we think that, okay, that was great, but now roll up sleeves, time to get to work. If you kind of think that way and forget everything that we saw in chapters 1 through 4, I'll be honest, this is going to be a series that will lead either to poisonous pride or deafening despair. It will lead you either to pride because you'll just think, cool, roll up my sleeves, let's get to it, I can do this. Or you'll look at this and say, I know my weakness, I know my failings, I can't do any of this. And neither of those are what God intends for us as his people as we read these passages. These are natural outworkings of God's spirit that we are seeing as we look at chapters 5 and 6. These are not targets to be achieved in our own strength. And and we need to get that clear. We need to kind of keep that in mind. Because if we don't keep that in perspective, if we don't keep that in mind, we'll read these passages and we'll misuse them rather than understanding them the way God intended. Last time, Paul laid out for us really what was the foundational principle for life in Christ. The principle of love. Some call it the law of love. I'm not crazy about that language personally. But whatever you call it, it's foundational for us to grasp that. It's important for us to understand the place of true Christ-centered love for one another in the Christian life. Because everything that Paul's going to say from the rest of this series... If verses 13 to 15 that we looked at last time was kind of the big picture, from verse 16 through to the end of the letter, we're transitioning from the big picture to the day-to-day. As where we're moving from the huge panorama that's painted for us to now the individual strokes. Consider this a series of snapshots for each day. And this morning, the first snapshot that we get is that of warfare. That's of warfare. The reality that the Christian life is one of warfare. In fact, I tagged our text this morning, a walk of warfare. Precisely because the Christian life is a life of warring, not with other people, like we saw at the end of the text last week, but actually with warring with our own flesh. We live in an age of Christianity that can honestly be described as spiritual Pollyannaism. You're familiar with the film Pollyanna, 1960? Um, So basically, she's an orphan. She kind of has like PMA on steroids, you know, PMA, positive mental attitude. Um, Basically thinks everything can be solved by positive mental attitude until it's not. But the film, of course, it's a film, so it has to resolve well. So it ends with more positive mental attitude. And so Pollyanna has become a symbol of people who typically just view everything as positive, everything's great. And if, 
Actually, the original film is not that bad. But the spiritual version is kind of annoying. You've met the type, right? The, the kinds of folks who basically just talk about the Christian life. The Christian life is fine. It's great. Be happy. Yeah, don't talk about how hard it is. It's just wonderful. You know, like the old song, you know, put all your troubles in your old kit bag and smile, smile, smile. And while that sounds great, while that, you know, none of us want to acknowledge that things are hard. None of us want to deal with difficulties in life. We, we would all like life to be easier if we could. While that might be the case for some people, maybe if I, m- m- let me just suggest this. We might be better off if we honestly were a little less naive and we were just honest about the fact that the Christian life can be a headache. It, in every conceivable sense of the term, is war. John Owen, the English Puritan, was Chancellor of Oxford University for a short time in his life. And during that time, he preached a series of chapel messages to the young students at Oxford that became known as a book that is still in print to this day called The Mortification of Sin. In his opening remarks in that book, Owen puts the rigor of the Christian life pretty plainly. I'll put it up on screen so you can read this. Owen said this. Do you mortify, referring to putting sin to death, do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Your being dead with Christ virtually, your being quickened with him will not excuse you from this work. That's a man who understood the frankly violent paradox that is this thing we call the Christian life. That in coming to Christ, we find rest in Christ. And at the same time, we find ourselves in conflict. I put it to you that this man lived in reality. This man lived in the real world. And this morning, I want to introduce us or reintroduce us, as the case may be, to a little bit of reality this morning. In particular, the reality of life as warfare as the believer. My big idea for this morning's message is pretty simple. My big, my big idea is that believers need to grasp the reality of life in Christ as warfare against indwelling sin. Believers need to grasp the reality of life in Christ as warfare against indwelling sin. I, if we fail to understand the nature of the Christian life as we live it, what we're going to find is we have lopsided or unrealistic expectations. Isn't that how that goes in life in general? If you go into something with one set of expectations and then you discover that actually this isn't that way, it's completely different, it affects the way in which you go about something. And so this morning, I want to help us to kind of get back in spiritual focus, as it were. To kind of grapple with reality as it is. And I think in this text, Paul is going to help us with that to a great deal. This morning, I want to consider the 
fourfold reality of the war against indwelling sin. When the Bible talks about the flesh, it's referring to that remnant of indwelling sin that is in all of us. We're called to battle that. As Owen said, we're called to mortify that. Well, before you start thinking, okay, cool, let's get to work. There are, there's a fourfold reality you need to kind of grapple with. And so we're going to consider that for the rest of our time this morning. First of all, will you consider with me the reality of the Spirit's help? The reality of the Spirit's help in verse 16. The reality of the Spirit's help. Paul picks up where we left off last week in verse 16. In verse 15, described the failure of love. Paul's now underscoring the point in verse 16. So you see how it begins? I say then, literally, this is what I'm saying. Here's my point. In light of what happens when love fails, verse 16, here's our central command for today, walk by the Spirit. The grammar here carries the idea of present and continuous action. Literally, it's be walking and keep on walking by the Spirit. Since it's the central command of this text, it's actually the only command that comes up in this text. It's pretty cr critical for us to understand what Paul means. Paul says that we are to walk or to live, and those terms are interchangeable. We are to walk or live by the Spirit. Some of your translations say walk in the Spirit. Not the best translation, but literally the idea of by the Spirit's ability, by the Spirit's help. Now, when we talk about this whole idea of walking by the Spirit, some Christians can give the impression that walking by the Spirit is some kind of mystical GPS that tells you which way to go or not go, who to talk to or not, if something is the right idea or not. More often than not, when we think about walking by the Spirit, we read these words and we immediately go from, Paul said it, straight to me. Some of you who have heard me talk about how you interpret the Bible, you've heard me say before, you should never read a Bible passage and start with this text, beeline straight to me. Because this text wasn't written to you. It's written for you. It's written for your benefit. But for you to understand the text properly, you need to understand what the author intended to say, what the author would have understood, and what the original audience would have heard. And I think especially when we come to a passage like this, understanding what Paul would have intended is a little more important than asking what do we mean when we read this text. Typically, people kind of read this, and we read it with ourselves in sense of, but remember, who's writing this? This is Paul writing this. Paul is a Jew, a highly educated Jew. Remember we looked at his biography, message one of this series? A highly educated Jew who knew his Old Testament better than any of us in this room. When he speaks to this idea of walking by the Spirit, can I put it to you that he has a very specific Old Testament picture in mind? As I was preparing this week, I, I came across an author who put it really well. It was, it's kind of a lengthy quote, and so what I've done is I've put it up on the screen so that you can follow with me. This is how one writer, J.B. Fesco, in his commentary on Galatians, puts it. Quote, Paul has employed language and images from Israel's past to characterize life under the old covenant. Before Israel came, before Christ came, excuse me, and inaugurated the new creation, Israel was held captive and imprisoned under the law. 
Paul told the Galatians that under the Mosaic Covenant, they were enslaved by weak and worthless elementary principles of the world. For a first century Jew steeped in the knowledge of the Old Testament, these words and images would undoubtedly invoke Israel's slavery under Pharaoh in Egypt. By this language, Paul argues that the law was akin to Pharaoh. Christ, one greater than Moses, delivered God's people from the bondage of the law. But Israel's exodus narrative did not end with their miraculous deliverance at the Red Sea. The prophet Isaiah explains that when God led his people by Moses and, quote, put them in the midst of put in the midst of them his holy spirit who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of moses who divided the waters before them who led them through the depths the spirit of the lord gave them rest this suggests that the cloud by day and the pillar by, of fire by night that led israel was in fact the holy spirit the prophet nehemiah offers important corroborating evidence the prophet recounts how even in the face of Israel's idolatry with the golden calf, God did not forsake them in the wilderness. In what way did God maintain his presence with Israel? The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. And quoting Nehemiah, 9 19 and 20 not only did god's spirit lead israel on the exodus but he also remained in their midst he instructed them and saw to their every need the psalmist reflects this very conclusion in his use of language evocative of israel coming out of the red sea and onto dry land teach me to do your will for you are my god let your good spirit lead me on level ground so israel was led by the spirit and walked by the Spirit. So when we read this language of walking by the Spirit, we're supposed to connect this to how God delivered his people out of Egypt, and after delivering them, led them on the path that they needed to go to. And Paul is making a parallel and saying, listen, just like old covenant Israel was led by the spirit after they came out of Egypt. Now you have been delivered from the bondage of the law. Now you too follow after the Holy Spirit. Can I put it to you that walking by the spirit and being led by the spirit, these two terms that come up in our text, they're less about the individual being guided as much as the people of God being led in the direction of our eternal inheritance. For the children of Israel, the journey was from the bondage of Pharaoh to the land promised by God. For us, it's deliverance from the bondage that we were under to the world, the flesh, and the devil. And going in the direction of our eternal inheritance. But here's where it's different for us. You see, Israel was led by the Holy Spirit from the outside. If you want to know more about that, um, when we did the series on the Holy Spirit, I taught an entire message on the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit was with God's people, but he didn't indwell them yet. That's a new covenant blessing that we enjoy. The Spirit led the children of Israel from the outside. He leads the people of God in this new covenant age from the inside out. So why does Paul start here then? Why does Paul feel the need to start with 
the reality of the Spirit's help. I put it to you that Paul starts here because this is a comfort for the Christian as they struggle against the flesh. As we walk under his governance, Paul shows us, you see it at the end of verse 16? I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will certainly not carry out the desire of the flesh. The guidance of the Spirit is not to lead us into the impulses of our remaining indwelling sin. Actually, if we follow the Spirit, if we are led by the Spirit, He's going to direct us away from those desires. Now, the immediate context of this, when he says the desire of the flesh, he's talking about what he talked about in verse 15. The desire for conflict to bite and devour one another to the point where we're consumed. But I think there's a broader principle that's true for any struggle with the flesh. That the Spirit ensures we are not led into sin. Isn't it interesting that Paul starts here? Of all the places that he could start in talking about this, he starts with this. He starts with the reality of the Spirit's help. The question is, well, why? Why start here? Might it be that as Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, that Paul, that, excuse me, the Spirit, desire to undercut our natural human tendency to think that the solution to our problems is to try harder and do better, Now, let's be clear, trying harder isn't wrong, and we should all want to do better. But before we jump straight to that, let's not skip a step. We need the help of the Spirit to make that happen. I mean, think about it. What's better than your strength? I put it to you, it's God's strength energizing and directing us as God's people. And that's the first part of the reality of our warfare as Christians, that we don't war in our own strength. Rather, we are called to submit to the leading of the Holy Spirit, and we war with the Spirit's help. And if we rightly understand that, that should be comforting for us as God's people. Secondly, this morning, I want you to consider with me the reality of the conflict's nature. So we talked about the reality of the Spirit's help. Secondly, the reality of the conflict's nature. The second aspect, the second part of this reality that we have to grapple with is how this conflict plays out. That's what Paul's going to talk to us about in verse 17. In one word, this conflict plays out on the level of our desires. See how Paul says it there in verse 17? He says, For the flesh desires what is against the spirit, and the spirit desires what is against the flesh. In every Christian, there exists this war of wills. Yes, we have been given a new nature and a new heart that desires righteousness. And yet, we live in this body of flesh that contains the remnants of indwelling sin. It's Reformation Sunday. Luther talks about this idea. He said that we are simultaneously saint and sinner. Beloved, when you became a Christian, amongst all the things that happened to you at the point of salvation... One of the things that happened was you got enlisted in a war. Beloved, there's not an ounce of neutrality for anybody who lives on this planet. Either you are led by the Spirit or you are led by the flesh. One writer puts it like this. 
this inner spiritual warfare is the nature of the Christian life. It is the experience of all those who live by the Spirit. The conflict Paul is describing here is not the moral conflict that everyone feels sometime, nor the conflict of a wayward Christian who is no longer committed to Christ. This is the conflict of a thoroughly committed Christian who is choosing each day to walk by the Spirit. Each day, the Christian who chooses to walk by the Spirit is engaged in a fierce battle between the Spirit and the sinful nature. I grew up in a tradition where we didn't believe that. We taught this idea called entire sanctification. That you got saved. Being saved is good, of course. They, they would never say it was bad. But it wasn't enough. What you needed was, in the tradition I grew up in, we called it a second work of grace. I was taught that you, there was an event called sanctification where the way it was described was the root of the Adamic nature was taken away so that the believer no longer has the love of sinning. As a kid, I heard it so often, I never really thought about it. But then I got converted at 14. And then I started, like, I could never reconcile them. I was like, okay, so the root of the Adamic nature is taken away so the believer doesn't love sinning. So is the believer perfect? But they were always quick to say, well, it's a type of perfection. You know, it's not Adamic perfection, the way it was explained to me. You know, the kind of perfection that Adam had in the garden where Adam was morally neutral. He didn't have a sin nature, but he could have chosen to sin. It's not that. And it's not angelic perfection. So I was like, okay, hold on. That doesn't make any sense. And the idea was once this happened... Once this event called entire sanctification took place, then you no longer had the love of sinning. You were now primed and ready for the next thing that happened, which was the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is not our topic for this morning. But can I put it to you? That's a, I, frank, I frankly think it's an unrealistic way to view the Christian life. I much prefer how the New Testament scholar, William Hendrickson, how he kind of characterized humanity when it comes to the struggle with sin. Hendrickson said that you have four groups of people. You've got the libertine, the person who's just given over to the flesh. Well, he doesn't have a struggle. He's like a fish. Does a fish really know it's wet? I mean, think about that. It lives in water all the time. We know what wet is because we have something to compare it called dry. Well, the libertine is the same way. All he knows is his flesh. He doesn't know any better. It's not a struggle for him. Then he said, well, there's the legalist. The legalist tries and tries and tries and works really, really hard, but gets no victory in this struggle. But then he said there's the believer. And the believer in this life experiences the conflict and all of its difficulty, and yet he knows he's won already because the Spirit tells him he's won. And then he said, finally, there's the believer in glory. The believer in glory is not struggling at all because he has passed from this life into glory. And now he wears the crown that's won for him by Christ. And I think that's a much healthier way to think about this struggle. That sure, the presence of the conflict can seem overwhelming in this life. In fact, did you catch how Paul described it in verse 17? He says that these, the spirit and the flesh, are opposed to each other so that you don't do what you want. It's like a tug of war. You've got 
at times where it feels like the flesh is pulling you in one direction and the spirit of God who indwells us is pulling us in a different direction. The, the struggle between our remaining sin and the indwelling spirit is such that the spirit desires righteousness well, the flesh just desires the polar opposite. And I put it to you that for some people, they read verses like this, and they kind of fall off into ditches on either side. On the one hand, you get the folks who are all too familiar with how this conflict is. And so what do they do? The Christian life is so hard. I'm exhausted. I can't do this. And in fact, they get upset with anybody who tells them they can do this. Stop telling me I can do this. I know I can't. But then you have the folks on the other side. And I'll be honest, I grew up around a lot of these people. The people who kind of say, even talking about this as a struggle is missing the point. You know, I grew up with cheesy slogans like, you're not a victim, you're a victor. Like, don't be such an evil. You know, rejoice. Christian life is great. Like, no, it's not. <laughs> Sometimes, it, like, as you all know, I'm in seminary. Can I tell you the theological term for both of those? Those of you who are taking notes, feel free to write this down. D U M B. It's dumb. Can I put it to you that Paul is much more of a realist? More so than most of us, if we're honest. So Paul can say that, yes, the Christian life is hard. Yes, growing in holiness is messy business. And at the same time, he says that you don't get to just kind of pout, sit in the corner and say, I refuse to engage. Jesus did it all for me. That's enough. I, 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 you know what? I'm just going to kind of limp over the line and it's okay. And yes, the spirit makes us overcomers in Christ. That's Paul's point in Romans chapter 8, isn't it? Yes, we have the victory. And yet we haven't achieved it on this side of glory. Some of you know my favorite New Testament book is the letter to the Hebrews. The letter to the Hebrews is full of this. It talks about the fact that we are perfect and yet we are being perfected. We're, we're not who we were, but we're not yet who we will be. And in fact, think about this. This may be helpful for some of you. The fact that we even feel a struggle is a good thing. Can I put it to you that dead men don't struggle? You ever seen a dead person or a dead animal? It doesn't do much of anything. It just sits there. Dead men don't struggle. The presence of struggle against sin means that there is life. You see, Jesus' work on the cross purchased freedom for us from the dominion of sin. And though we wrestle against it, there's hope even in the, excuse me, in the midst of that struggle. And beloved, can I put it to you that this, put, this does a lot for how we deal with one another as we recognize that we are all works in progress. Rightly understood. Shouldn't this make us more gracious and less self-righteous with those who struggle? And by the way, I mean people who actually struggle. 
told me to put a disclaimer in here. People like to say, well, I'm struggling. And then you talk to them. I've counseled more than enough people over the years. I'm struggling with a particular sin. Okay, well, let's talk about it. And it becomes very clear. No, you're not struggling. You're giving over to it. You're not fighting this at all. If we're going to talk about struggle, let's actually, some of you know I'm a stickler for words. Struggle actually carries the idea of fighting, grappling with. But for those who are genuinely struggling, for those who are genuinely day by day making the decision to walk by the Spirit and therefore find themselves walking headlong into this conflict, we need to be careful to maintain the balance and how we help one another. Sometimes I've gone to Christians and talked about how I'm struggling with something and they've had just a very clinical way of dealing with it. Almost as though it's here. Do this, take three Bible verses and go to bed. It's not the most helpful way. But neither is neither are we to go down the other extreme of just, man, this is tough. I mean, there's not much you can really do. I mean, I really sympathize, but it is what it is. Actually, Paul's going to help us when we get to chapter 6. There's a role that all of us have to play in helping each other in this struggle. And that's part of this re- fourfold reality of the Christian life as warfare. The fact that we have the Spirit's help. The reality of how this conflict actually works itself out. But thirdly, there's the reality of our new status. The reality of our new status, and that's in verse 18. So in verse 18, we're brought to yet another aspect of this reality of the Christian life as warfare. And it's the fact that we as Christians have received a new status. So verse 18, Paul says, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The if here is the kind of if that says, if and you are. It's not like we use the word if, where it might be, it might not. There's a different kind of one in Greek for that. This is literally, yes, this is how it is. The Christian comes under a new status when they are led by the Spirit. It's like going to a building and seeing that they've hung up a sign that says, under new management. And actually, as we've gone through Galatians, Paul has said a lot about the new status that the Christian has. There in your study guide, I put a bunch of references from Galatians. These are all the references to the new status that the Christian has underneath there on point three. So Galatians 2.20, he says that we've been crucified with Christ. Galatians 3.1-6, he says we've received the Spirit. 3.13, he says that we've been redeemed from the curse of the law. 3.29, we've been made heirs according to the promise. 4.28, we've been made children of the promise. 5.1, Christ has set us free. 5.13, we've been called for freedom. That's all the statements of status that Paul makes in the letter to the Galatians. And now we can add one more to it. That the Christian is not under the law. That our status has changed from those who were under the condemnation of the law to those who are being led by the Spirit. I don't know about you, but I have to remind myself regularly that my experience, as real as it may feel, And what God says about me are two very different things. If I can be honest and confess to you my own frustration. My own frustration at times is that 
I often believe that I'm further along than I am. And then when reality hits, you're like, wait, what? Man, I'm really behind. But think back to Galatians up to this point. We've been at this for a while. Think back to all that Paul has said up to this point. The emphasis of this letter, the tone of this letter, the underlying rhythm of this letter has been about our justification, our adoption, our being acceptable to God, and that being God's work, that we don't contribute to that before or after. Christian, you and I live, here's a good phrase to remember, we live status forward. You know, do you catch what I mean when I say that? That we live out of our status, not behind it. We're not trying to become something. In the words of Kevin DeYoung in his excellent book, The Whole in Our Holiness. Rather, we are seeking to be who we are. The law is founded on the principle of doing and achieving. But life in the spirit is about resting and receiving and being. Beloved, that's why we can never hear too much about Christ and what he's done for us. We can never hear too much about our status in him. We can never hear too much about the righteousness that is, to use again, it's Reformation Sunday, so I'm going to quote Luther once again, that is extra nos outside of us. We can never hear too much about that. We can never hear too much about all that he's achieved for us, including giving us all that we need to fight this conflict and win. We've seen the reality of the spirit's help, the reality of the conflict itself, the reality of our new status. Finally, this morning, I want to consider the reality of unrestrained sin. You may think, Kofi, what on earth does that have to do with anything? Actually, more than you think. Now, in the interest of sermonic honesty, this point really should stretch to verse 26. But I wanted to treat the fruit of the spirit in its own sermon. So I'm going to stop here in verse 21 and we'll pick it up next week. The final part of this reality that we have to come to grips with. The final part of this struggle is that we need to, as it were, look in the belly of the beast itself. And we need to see what happens when the flesh reigns unrestrained. So verse 19 Paul begins and he says, now the works of the flesh are obvious. You look at them and you know what they are. Nobody sits there and thinks, mm, I don't know, is that God or is that the flesh? No, it's kind of obvious. As Leon Morris put it, these are the deeds people do when they are controlled by the sinful nature. Well, what exactly are these works? What does the flesh look like? When it's completely unrestrained. Well, to kind of make this a little easier to get our heads around, I've put them in three categories. First of all, Paul describes for us what you could categorize as inappropriate lusts. Inappropriate lusts. So you see the first three in that list there? He says, now the words of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, moral impurity, and promiscuity. Sexual immorality, that's just a New Testament junk drawer term for, or it's kind of a catch-all for every kind of sexual activity that's outside of God's commanded, covenantal, and consensual norm. 
if it's not one man, one woman in the covenant of marriage, this is the catch-all term for any sort of sexual activity. All of it. Moral impurity. Actually, this word appears very closely. Every time in the New Testament you see this word, you see it with sexual immorality. They're always twin together. So Colossians 3, 5, Paul would say, therefore put to death what belongs to your earthly nature. Sexual immorality, impurity, same word. Ephesians 5, 3, but sexual immorality and any impurity or greed should not even be heard among you as is proper for saints. Same word. So these two terms are always paired together. And this idea of moral impurity, it speaks less about the action. That's the first term. More, the focus here is more on the internal desires, the internal thoughts that lead to the action. Paul says promiscuity. In Mark chapter 7 and verse 22, this word is translated as self-indulgence. Same word, self-indulgence. Not just the act, not just the internal desire, but the very attitude of having self-pleasure, self-indulgence at the center. These first three really speak to sexual desire that has spiraled out of control. And I put it to you that that kind of summarizes the culture in which we live. I remember a few years ago hearing Dr. Albert Moller lecture at a Ligonier conference on what he called the hypersexualized generation. And he got slaughtered for that talk online by Christians and non-Christians. It was fascinating because the argument was, oh, he's exaggerating. It's not that bad. You're going to make people feel like they can't talk about this subject. That was, okay, just following off to college. I want to say 2008, maybe 2009. 12 years on. I'm in a pulpit, so I want to be very careful of the examples that I use. But some of you may have heard about something that happened in a high school this week with a bunch of teen boys acting entirely inappropriately. I've got kids in the room, so I want to be careful of my choice of words. Turn on any TV show. I like watching TV. I don't do watching TV as a sin. I'm very careful about what I watch on TV. Because it feels like every TV show has to have some kind of innuendo. And it's almost as though our culture just bombards us with this. Bombards us with this. Why? Because that's what the flesh likes. And so Paul says that the the flesh is characterized by inappropriate lust but not only is it characterized by inappropriate lust secondly it's characterized by false spirituality characterized by false spirituality the next two things in this list that paul gives us they speak to twisted worship they speak to spirituality that is guided by self not by divine revelation So first of all, he says idolatry. I feel like in this day and age, I don't need to remind evangelicals that idolatry is not just worshipping a statue. So much has been written on the fact that idolatry is on heart tissue. That it's placing anything above God. If anything becomes all controlling in our thoughts and our attitudes, Paul says that's idolatry. He says idolatry, and then he says 
My translation says, Sorcery! What on earth does this have to do with anything? Well, it's interesting. The, the, the original word that's used here, it's where we get our word pharmacy from. I've been actually at war with pharmacies this week, very long period. The, the place where you're supposed to go pick up your drugs. Why does Paul use a word here that has to do with, well, where we get our word pharmacy from? Well, actually, if you know the ancient world, ancient worship was very drug-fueled. Any classical historians in the room? Anyone ever heard of the Oracle at Delphi? If you haven't, the Oracle at Delphi was a part tourist attraction, part center of worship, part magic eight ball in human form. This attraction ran for about 1,400 years. And basically you had a woman who was the Oracle. She was called the Pythia because she had this python spirit. And basically she sat and people, the world of kings would go to get words. She was an oracle, so she was basically the mouthpiece of the gods. We now know, and she's kind of be like in this like constant delirious state where people thought that she was enjoyed by the gods. We now know that actually she was drugged up on a mixture of carbon dioxide and methane. But that's just one, that was probably like a big scale example of what was very common in the ancient world. Well, part of that was this belief that the way you connected with the supernatural was by taking drugs and potions and basically coming out of yourself. It was a means of connecting to the divine that God hadn't ordained. I think that when Paul mentions this here, he's not just talking about the literal act of taking some kind of basically psychedelic substance so that you can kind of tap into the divine. I think he's talking about any sort of means of worship that is not sanctioned by God himself. Any sort of attempt to connect with the divine that has nothing to do with how God has revealed himself in the person of Christ. And so with both of these terms, he talks about the fact that the flesh has a spiritual... That's how you can meet people who say, oh, I'm really spiritual. No, we hear in our culture, I'm... I'm... What's the phrase? I'm spiritual but not religious. Is, is, is that the phrase? Yeah. Never forget sitting in an airport. Um, I think I was in Atlanta coming back home. Sitting in an airport. And sitting next to a lady who's... She kind of fit the profile, if you know what I mean. Like, kind of garland of little crystals and stuff in her hair. A bunch of, like, various sized crystals around her neck. All kinds of bangles. Kind of flowy clothes. Just kind of looked the type. And I'm sitting there with a book in my hand. She kind of turns, looks at the book, and then kind of turns again and starts saying, how could you possibly believe that? And for a split second, my, my politeness kind of abandoned me. Because mentally I was thinking, says the person who's got a bunch of crystals around her. Seriously. <laughs> I, was, I was happy that you know that I was a lot more polite about it. 
But why is it that somebody would believe that? But think me reading a book about the sovereignty of God, I was reading A.W. Tozer's Sovereignty of God, I was preparing to teach on it. Why would you think that's weird, but that isn't? Why? Well, that started with the flesh. That doesn't come from God. Remember 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural man doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God, neither can he. In fact, there's foolishness to him. Human beings would develop all kinds of spirituality because we're created in the image of God. We're created to worship something. But Paul says that when the flesh is unrestrained, it will make for itself ways of worship. That's why Calvin could say that the human heart is an idol factory. Inappropriate last for spirituality. Thirdly, strained relationships. The next ten, which I'll just kind of run through quickly, all speak to the kinds of strains on relationship that the flesh causes. So he says, hatreds in the plural. Hateful attitudes, the internal feeling of dislike towards other people. He says strife. Strife is twinned with that word hatred. It's the outward manifestation of those inward attitudes. Jealousy. Actually, the word for jealousy here is an interesting one. It's just the word for desire or the word for passion. It's neutral in itself. It's the context that tells us it's self-centered passion. Outbursts of anger, literally anger in the plural. Selfish ambition. Romans 2.8 translates that word as self-seeking. The big I and small you, I will tread on you to get to where I need to get to. Dissensions and factions. Internal squabbles that lead to external divisions. Envies, again, in the plural. Drunkenness. Some Christians at this point will jump on and say, see, Christians should not drink alcohol, but that's not Paul's point. Drunkenness here carries the idea of intoxication, of being controlled by something that is not the Spirit of God. Carousing. Uncontrolled partying. Giving way to the flesh with total abandon. That's what the flesh without restraint looks like. And isn't it funny that Paul refers to these not as the fruit of the flesh. He says that these are the works of the flesh. Think about the letter of Galatians so far. Do works have a positive connotation in this book? They're negative on purpose, and that's been the same here. Did you also catch how imbalanced this list is? This order of 3, 2, and 10, most commentators agree, is kind of how this list is ordered. It's imbalanced. It's designed to be a picture of disorder. It doesn't make sense when you hear it. And in fact, Paul kind of throws in a junk drawer term. He says, and anything similar. Because there are more manifestations of the flesh than just these. And the stakes are high. See the end of verse 21? He says, I am warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so some people will read this and will be like, see, Christians are capable of all these things. So either you keep yourself, get straight, and stay straight, or you're going to experience God's great cane in the sky. And yes, the New Testament does talk about mortification. I mean, I read you the Owen quote to begin this message. And yes, the effects of not doing this are way too real. But, and I'm almost done. Did you catch the signal? It was subtle. You read it. It's real subtle, but it's there. 
So let's take it to the end of verse 21. I am warning you about these things, as I warned you before, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, I ask, did you catch the signal? Let me see if I can make it plain. What has Paul told us in Galatians about inheriting up to this point? Give you a hint, chapter 3 and 4. Paul has told us that we, the children of God, not that we will be heirs, but that we are heirs. That we are actually going to inherit. In fact, Paul spent an ins- extended section, 3.23 to 4.7, talking about the fact that we are not slaves, but we are sons. Might I suggest that when Paul says that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God, he's not talking about believers. This is the unregenerate person. He's like I said earlier, the fish just hopelessly swimming in a sea of sinfulness with barely a moment's thought. But by using that language, here's the signal. By using that language of not inheriting, he makes it very clear. And this is not talking about you. That if you are a believer, yes, you're going to struggle with sin. And at times, yes, you are going to sin. But you are not characterized by this. Just abandonment totally to the flesh. That's not true of a Christian. Why? Because you've been made an heir. The fact that you are an heir tells you that you no longer have that relationship to the flesh that the unbeliever does. For those who are united to Christ, yes, we struggle with sin. Yes, we are in a war. But the good news is we are not given over to the flesh. The flesh will not win. Might we lose battles here and there? Of course we will. Can I remind you? In fact, let's look at this real quick. First John chapter 1. I'll close out here. First John in the first chapter. First John chapter 1. Beginning in verse 8. John says, If we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a lie and his word is not in us. My little children, chapter 2, verse 1. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone sins, here's the good news. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. The fact that we sin, not to excuse sin, of course, we are to repent of it. We are to go before the Lord. We are to ask for forgiveness. But the reality is, sin is no longer the defining feature of our lives. And so even as we encounter this struggle, even as we encounter this reality of being at war, here's the good news. The good news is, The struggle doesn't define us. Our status defines us. We are sons, and so we can go to the Father in the name of Jesus, receive cleansing, receive forgiveness. And on 
one day we will cross the horizon from this life into the next where the struggle will finally be over. And so in a very real sense, who we are gives context to the struggle in which we find ourselves. And Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the status that we have in you. We thank you that we are not given over to our flesh and it's unrestrained and out of control manifestation. But rather we are those who are in you, we are in your son. We have the spirit's leading. We are not under the law. And so Father, would you help us that we would live free to choose. That we would live out of that reality. That we would not, as one writer put it, fight for the victory, but fight from it. Father, help us in our ongoing battle against the flesh. Help us not to grow weary. Help us to encourage one another and to minister to one another. And above all, help us that even in those moments where we fail, that we would not run from you, but run to you. Our God of mercy and our God of grace. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, beloved, would you stand with me as we conclude our service this morning?